0: Um, Well, welcome everyone to City Beautiful Church, and congratulations on um, achieving uh, Spring Forward or whatever we're doing. Is it Spring Forward? So there's some people in the world that think it's noon? No, 10 o'clock? Some people think it's 10 o'clock right now, but you guys are on time. You know, uh, Annie Singleton called me on my way in here, and we were just talking about this uh, married engaged couple thing, and I was saying, I think we put way too much trust in the Apple Corporation to wake us up in the morning that they've actually like changed clocks. So I had to wake up and like double check on the internet to make sure that it was really the time that it said that it was. So I commend you all uh, for doing that. Um, So we're, we're in the middle of this series called In Search of the Beloved, talking about God's pursuit of us and our pursuit of God. And what does that really look like? And kind of honing in on the story of Jesus as John tells it in his gospel as we're marching towards this climax of Easter. And it's been so amazing for me personally to really immerse myself in the words and the story of John over these past several weeks um, to experience how Jesus is continually offering these heavenly perspectives that kind of break up and rupture our earthly assumptions of how it's supposed to work. And we've seen that from all different angles. We've seen him engage with, with different individuals like the, the Samaritan woman at the well and Nicodemus, this, you know, Pharisaic elite and, and all of these different stories where Jesus is kind of speaking in a way that isn't quite clear and concise to people, but it kind of opens them up to a new reality, a new possibility. It challenges their assumptions of what they think God is like, what they, how they think the world works, uh, and ultimately who they think they are in the midst of that story. Um, and so today we're going to be looking at John chapter 6. We're going to be looking at John chapter 6. Um, this, was a, this is a really great chapter. It was very challenging as I was preparing for this one, kind of seeing what does the Lord want us to walk away with today. Um, and so my sermon is titled this morning, Undomesticating Jesus. Undomesticating Jesus. And this is kind of my thesis for us. Jesus rescues us from a consumer mentality that never satisfies and offers us abundant, eternal life in Him. What I want us to do today is really examine how so much of our cultural inheritance changes the way that we normally come to Jesus and what our expectations are of Him when we try to place him within our boxes and to feed our needs, but how so often when we allow Jesus to be who he truly is, he actually ruptures our needs and our assumptions and then brings us into this deeper understanding of what we call abundant life or eternal life. But how do we measure that? That was one of the conversations that we were having this week in the, te- the teaching team. You know, a lot of times as Christians, we use the words, we acknowledge, yes, eternal life, abundant life, and whatnot. And, you know, for many of us, that means, you know, heaven, that's heaven. You you go somewhere else when you die. Uh, And that's part of it. But abundant and eternal life means so much more than that. And I think for me, the best place that I can come to when I'm talking about abundant life or eternal life isn't so much geographical, like heaven is this cloud Or maybe it's Jupiter or somewhere out there that we're going to land on. And, you know, we all have angel wings and harps. Um, It's not necessarily geographical. It's not necessarily something um, measurable. Um, For me, abundant and eternal life is connection with God. It's intimacy with our Creator, intimacy with our Father. You know, I've looked at several times um, when we're examining the story of Israel in the desert. And they're being given this, this idea of the promised land. And the Israelites, they want to know the dimensions, right? What's it going to look like? What can we expect? What's the size? And and Yahweh continues to say to them, I'm with you. And they're like, yeah, okay, we get that. But seriously, though, what is it going to look like? What What are the expectations? And he continually is challenging them, saying, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you. Because what he's trying to do is to move their confidence in whatever the life God is promising them from these geographical understandings of what a promised land might be to this relational understanding. That it's intimacy with God, it's learning what their identity is as His children that really becomes the promise, and then everything else kind of stems from that. But what we're going to see today is how, just like so many people in Jesus' day, we often turn the signs that the Messiah gives us to reveal what God is really like, and sometimes we turn the Messiah Himself into products based uh, on our needs and our consumption. But we have to understand this morning that if Jesus is going to rescue us from a consumerist mentality, we need to rescue our understandings of him and to let him be who he is, who really is. So let's pray and we'll jump right into this. Uh, Heavenly Father, we testify that you're here and you are good. Lord, even as we're singing that song this morning, thinking it's such a base word. It's, it's a word that we perceive as being common that you are good. But that's something I never want us to take advantage of, Lord. Would you teach us what it means for you to be good? Would you elevate our understanding of goodness? That we can sit in your presence today, that we can let you be who you really are and allow that to change us, to transform us. So speak to us, Lord, because our ears are open to hear your voice. And may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. And so in John chapter 6, there's kind of these three pieces to the story. First of all, is the well-known story of the feeding of the 5,000. This is one of the stories that we see in all four Gospels. 90% of John is unique unto itself. But there's just a few stories in there that are kind of paralleled in what we call the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so we're going to see the feeding of the 5,000, and then Jesus um, walks on water in the Sea of Galilee as he's catching up with his disciples, and then he begins to engage with those who are kind of gathering around him to hear him and to see these signs and wonders on the other side of the lake. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. So in John 6, 1 through 15, we have this story of the feeding of the 5,000. And it's, it's a really amazing and dramatic story for those of you um, who don't know about it. Jesus is up in uh, just north of Israel um, in kind of a rural area. And he's teaching and all of these people are gathering together. And so he kind of brings up like, well, we need to feed these people. And the disciples are kind of confused like, I mean, we don't have anything. Right? We don't really know what we're going to do. Um, and then one of the disciples brings this little boy, and he's got uh, five very small, meager loaves and two little fish. Uh, and he says, well, what, what about this? And, and so Jesus takes it up, and he gives thanks for it. He prays over it, and then they begin to give it to all of these people. It says, and this is really interesting, patriarchal society, P.S. The feeding of the 5,000 is just 5,000 men, because we don't count women and children, you know. <laughs> So we're actually probably talking about maybe 10,000. We don't know how many people. We're talking about a lot more than 5,000. Um, but, but as Jesus prays and starts to disperse um, this, these fish and this bread, there's enough to go around. And then he sends the disciples out with these baskets to gather up the remainders, and they're able to fill up all of their baskets. And, of course, there's 12 baskets uh, of, of, of abundance that comes back from this very small offering. And it's important for us to recognize that there's a lot of symbolism in this story because what John is really doing is reworking the Exodus story after the Passover. So Israel, um, exiting out of slavery in Egypt, they have to grab whatever they can and they go out and they're in the desert for 40 years before they enter into the Promised Land, as I mentioned before. Um, And while they're in the desert, they're complaining about being hungry and being thirsty. And so God does a series of miracles through Moses in order to provide for them. This is where we get um, the story of the manna, which is kind of like cornflakes that would land on the ground every morning. And it's a really amazing story. You can go back and read that in Exodus. Um, But the word manna literally means, what is it? Because this stuff would just show up every morning, and the Israelites would gather it up, and there'd be just enough. They weren't allowed to, to store it for later. They could only eat what was in it today. But they say, well, what is it? But they had to trust in that daily sustenance from the Lord. And so this story is almost a uh, recapitulation, which is a really fancy word for saying telling the story all over again to tie in what happened in the past and to bring it into the present. And so in the, in, the, in the story of the Israelites in the desert, we had this manna. In this new story, we have fish and loaves. In the old story, we had Moses as, as the mouthpiece of God. In this story, we have the Messiah. And in the old story, we had this, the literal slavery of moving out of Egypt into freedom. And what we're gonna see in this story too, this is what John is really telling us, it's about a new slavery that God is welcoming us out of with his Messiah into a new kind of freedom. And there's this really amazing little nugget at the end of this story in verses 14 to 15 that I want to kind of hone in on. So after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Whenever you see prophet capitalized in the New Testament, they're talking about Moses, the capital P prophet. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Isn't that fascinating? Jesus knew what they wanted. He knew that they wanted to make him king. And the, the irony is that Jesus knows that he is the king. He is the Messiah, which is a, a, a regal word about being anointed to lead the people. So he knows that the people's mentality on reading is exactly what he deserves. Yet he withdraws to a mountain by himself. And I was just kind of sitting in that thinking, this is so curious. So Lord, why, why are these people, they want to make Jesus king? But he knows this, and he actually wants to reject their call to be king on their terms. And as I was praying about it, this is really where I came to. I think, you know, so often what we see in a story is people mistaking signs for products. People are mistaking signs for products. You know, there's these seven major signs in the Gospel of John um, that are meant to, to show, that when Jesus does a miracle, it's showing this far deeper truth. That he is the Messiah, the word of God, God incarnate, come to lead us from slavery into freedom. And so what I'm looking at in this story is these people are coming to Jesus to make him king, but not because they actually want a king, because they want him to continue to produce for them. He want, they want him to give them something, and so there's this benefit. So it's almost like they want to put Jesus in these golden handcuffs, so to speak. They want a king that's just going to be kind of this personal ATM machine that gives them whatever they need. And Jesus sees their hearts in this, and so he rejects that kind of calling to being a king. And so as I was ex- kind of examining that, saying, okay, Lord, what, what is in the hearts of these people that's maybe not so different from where we're at today? I really felt like the Lord was kind of leading me to this understanding of what we might call uh, consumerism or having a consumerist mentality. Now, you and I, we are needs based creatures, are we not? We have legitimate needs. We need food. We need water. We need shelter. We need love. There are these very primary um, things that we are created that we need in order to survive. And so, when I'm talking about consumerism, I'm not talking about the fact that you and I just have needs but it's when your needs and my needs become obsessive. When, when that is the guiding principle in our lives that we are going out in order to take what... I'm so sorry, There's my timer is done. <laughs> I don't know why that is. Um, go check the oven. But a consumerist mentality is when our needs become obsessive, when we begin to be defined by what we need to consume in order to survive. So here's kind of three principles that I want to highlight when we're talking about a consumerist mentality. Number one, consumerism defines you by what you're missing and what you take in to fill the gaps. And so when we live in a consumerist culture, when we have a consumerist mentality, we begin by starting by defining ourselves by what we're lacking. That we know that there's something within us that needs to be filled. And that's a very interesting place when you begin to define a human being because it automatically triggers some sort of an anxiety. That we need to go out we need to start filling in those gaps. And so your inherent identity is based on your lack and then on whether or not you're going to go out and get what you want. And what happens so often, that consumerist mentality then, is that we begin to reduce people and resources into these products that only exist in order to fill these gaps that we're told are so integral to who we are. And that's leads us into this kind of survival mode where we begin to shut down these higher ways of thinking and these higher ways of being human that God's called us to. um, And it begins to kill off our spirit as we're going out, trying to to grasp at things in order to make ourselves feel whole. And that kind of leads to the second thing. Consumerism is fueled by a fear of scarcity. There isn't enough to go around. So we have this consumerist mentality where to find that you're missing something, you're not complete, you're not whole, and you need to go out and find things to make yourself whole. You need to gobble up people and you need to gobble up resources in order to find yourself as as a whole human being. And so then there's this fear of scarcity that says not only do you need to consume in order to be a whole person, but there's not enough to go around. So now, you're in competition with me, and I'm in competition with you, because we want resources, and we're afraid that there's not going to be enough to go around. And the interesting thing about this scarcity mindset, or maybe we talk about it um, as impoverishment, is it doesn't necessarily have to do with the amount of resources that are actually available. It has nothing to do with what we have or what we don't have. It's about a heart posture. It's the way in which we hold that fear of scarcity and the way that we pursue resources. You know, I think it's, it's probably pretty easy for us to say that there's nobody in this room who's actually in danger of starving. You know, in many ways, we're lucky to live in, the, in a first world country where there is food and there is opportunity, and there are people all around the world who are literally starving, who literally don't have enough resources. But I think you and I can very easily be in that consumerist mindset and a fear of scarcity because for us, it's not, it's not a survival of trying to stay alive, it's a survival of comfort. I think comfort is a very dangerous form of survival. And so we are afraid that there's not enough to go around in order to maintain this level of comfort in our lives. And so we begin to panic and consume and hoard resources. I remember when I was a child being put in a situation quite often, where I was really struggling with this idea of a fear of scarcity being welled up within me, being put in a position where there was you know, several other people in a very small group and there was a limited amount of resources in front of us and we're doing everything we can to get them as quickly as we can. And of course, I'm talking about the game Hungry Hungry Hippos. <laughs> it is a panic-inducing, cruel method of torture for a small child you have to go in and there's, just, there's only so many marbles and you have to hit the thing really hard and the, and the hippos are eating it, and it's just, you know, for someone like me who's an Enneagram 9 and wants like peace and, and happiness and harmony, like it's too much. Competition is terrifying. But you see, it's so wired into our culture, this idea that there's not enough and there's a fear of scarcity and that we need competition in order to survive, uh, but for us, survival being this level of comfort. And so then you and I when we're living out of this consumerist mentality, when we have this fear of scarcity, we work only to survive. We work only to survive, only to maintain a level of comfort. And so whatever we do with our hands and our heart, we're very willing to compromise on what we know is right. We're very willing to compromise who we know God's calling us to be in order to make it through the day. And so we say, well, you know, the gospel message of Jesus is a nice idea, but it doesn't meet the the world the way that it actually is today. And I have to participate in systems of competition and consumption in order to survive. And we lament, "If if only there was a different way, if only there was a different world that we could live in where we didn't have to compete for survival in that way. And we find ourselves in the same mentality that Israel was in Egypt, When the Egyptians told the Israelites, you are literally what you produce. Your value is dependent upon how many bricks you're able to make in a day. Or how high this wall becomes. Or whether or not these crops uh, come in. Your identity is completely tied into your performance and your work ethic. And do we not live in that same kind of slavery mentality when we live in a system of consumerism uh, like our current culture? And that brings me to the third point about consumerism. The natural product of a culture of consumerism is perpetual violence, because when we live out of a fear of scarcity, it's all about self-protection, it's all about consolidation of resources. And so when we live in this culture of consumerism, when we talk about power and privilege, it's defined by those terms, who holds all the cards, who has all of the resources and you look at that globally and you look at that even locally in our relationships with other people who's got that I don't and that's how we so often define power did you know that in the 1600s there was not one but two wars because of nutmeg there's a tiny little island in Indonesia called Ran and the Dutch claimed it and the English claimed it and nutmeg was all the rage in the 1600s I don't know they needed their eggnog or something But there were two wars, like military engagements, like thousands of people died for nutmeg. But this is the story of humanity. You look at any war, and it probably comes down to a fear of scarcity. It probably comes down to an impoverishment mentality that not only do I have to protect myself and to gather up my resources and hold them closely, but I have to give uh, preeminent violence to the other person because I'm afraid they might take what I have. And we establish these absurd systems of value to things that don't have a lot of meaning or value because we want all of the resources for ourselves. And I think when we're enslaved to systems of consumerism, that is a form of... Uh, slavery, whether we recognize it or not. It's a form of violence. Uh, in, ni- in the 1930s, the writer named Aldous Huxley wrote a book called Brave New World. It was kind of this science fiction novel about what could potentially happen in the future, what, what, the, what the New World Order might look like. And it was really interesting that Aldous Huxley's, Huxley's book, um, the, the, those who are in control rule by giving the people exactly what they want. You know, a lot of times we see these kind of dystopian future movies or books or whatever where people are ruling by stripping the people of their rights. But Huxley gave us this very nefarious alternate vision where people, like leaders, were giving people exactly what they wanted and they gave them entertainment and then what they were doing was dulling down the people's desires to live authentic lives. And so we distract ourselves to death. And I think it's very prescient, here we are, uh, 90 years later from his book, and it's coming true. In that consumerist culture, we distract ourselves to death. We entertain ourselves to death. And the nefarious thing in Huxley's story was not that people were going to be enslaved by, by ruling forces, but people would willingly choose the slavery of comfort. You and I still live in Egypt but we're choosing to live there. Because we're believing the lie that at the core of who we are, we're consumers. At the core of who we are, there's not enough to go around and we need to gobble up everything that we can in order to fill these holes within our hearts. And so I think when, when we're looking at these story of these, of these crowds engaging with Jesus and they want him to be a king, it's out of that consumerist mentality that he, in his love... And his sovereignty is able to reject that and to walk away. And so the next part of the story, Jesus uh, walks on the water to catch up with his disciples who have started to cross the Sea of Galilee over to the other side, to Capernaum. And it's really interesting here, just as a beautiful little aside, what John's doing. is If if the feeding of the 5,000 is the retelling of the story of the manna in the desert then what we're looking at here is Jesus crossing the sea, just like the Israelites crossed the Red Sea and the Jordan. So, of course, that's going to bring us into that full mentality of being in the desert. And so what does that kind of tell us, this consumerist mentality that we see um, in these people that have gone before us? Um, We can so easily miss the Messiah in the miracle. We can so easily miss the Messiah in the miracle. When you and I come to Jesus, not because his signs and wonders point us to a deeper reality, but because those signs and wonders, the things that he's able to do for us, are just products that actually reinforce this consumerist mentality. We miss the whole message of why he's calling us. So the people catch up with Jesus on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and this is what it says in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you're not looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, To believe in the one he has sent. And so you can see here how they're they're coming to Jesus looking for miracles, but just because they want a product from him. And they're completely missing the deeper truths that Jesus is pointing to when he's feeding the 5,000 or when when he's healing the sick, when he's raising the dead, whatever it might be. And so he kind of gives them these two alternatives. He's saying, you know, you're looking for this food that spoils. We could call that the bread of the impoverishment. He's saying, you ate, your lo- you ate the loaves and you had your fill. But that's food that spoils. That's, that's the bread of impoverishment that you're just trying to fill these gaps within you with this temporary mentality. And so temporary and lifeless things cannot satisfy our souls. Only something eternal and living can meet that hunger. And it's so interesting that even the Israelites res- or the, the Jews' response is what must we do to do the works God requires? Because the survival mode that they're stuck in, that that Egypt slavery mode, tells them that they've got to earn it with their own two hands. What do we have to do? How do we perform? How do we do the dance in order to get this kind of bread that you're talking about? You know, sometimes we can almost talk about it as miracle chasers. People want to chase after Jesus to find the signs and the wonders, but to miss who he really is in it. This is what's so fascinating about this, that we, as we've been seeing through the Gospel of John, here is God incarnate, the Word of God, the Word made flesh, that God has pitched His tent. I love that from that first chapter, that God has tabernacled, God has pitched His tent among us. He has met us on our terms. But we want just a little bit more. We want God to compromise who He is just a little bit more to meet our needs, to fit the box that we want to put Him in. We want the miracles, we want the signs and wonders, we want the evidence of God at work in our lives, but we want Him to do it in the way that we want it to be done, to reinforce our consumerist mentality. So Jesus offers the bread of life. We looked at this a little bit in in chapter 5, about when Jesus says that He is the bread of life, but He talks about this food that endures Not this temporary thing that you eat it once and you've had your fill, but then you're going to have to come back again and and it's never enough and it's only satisfying your physical nature. It's doing nothing for your soul. He begins to talk about this food that endures. Jesus is calling us to a faithfulness that tends to our spiritual hunger and leads to life eternal. You see, when we're stuck in that consumerist mentality, when we go into survival mode, then we attempt to use material things to fix our spiritual needs because we forget that we're spiritual creatures. Consumerism reduces us just to material creatures, and so we try to consume relationships and resources and entertainment and experiences in order to tend to a much deeper spiritual reality, and then we wonder why we're never truly satisfied. And so it's amazing looking at Jesus' response when they're saying, what is it that we have to do? How do we work hard to get the things that then we're, that we deserve? And Jesus says, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. And so the bread of eternal life, the work that we're invited to do because of that, is not just to perform, 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 and work hard, but it's for us to surrender. It's for you and I to let go. To have this open handedness to be able to receive from God the things that he truly wants to give us that will minister to those deep, deepest parts of our soul. The thing that you and I have forgotten about because we've been so stuck in this consumerist mentality. So Jesus is challenging the Jews at the Sea of Galilee and he's challenging us today to re-examine these small boxes that we're trying to place him in. And he's challenging us to look at the small boxes that we're holding ourselves in in that way so that he can be truly free and so that we can be truly free. Let's continue reading in verse 30. So they asked him, What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the man in the wilderness, as it's written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. You hear that? Like, okay, I'm in. Let's do it. Give it to me. Let's go. Munch, munch, munch. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Now there's several statements within John where Jesus says, I am. And for those of us who have read the Old Testament, we would recognize as the Jews of that day, when when Jesus says, I am, he's referring to the story of Moses in the burning bush. When Moses is coming to, to, to experience Yahweh for the first time and he's saying, well, what's your name? Who are you? And he's asking for all these qualifiers and the ultimate answer God gives is, I am Yahweh. So Jesus here is saying like, I am the bread of life, and he's speaking out, I am God incarnate. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who has sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. And remember, when we're talking about eternal life, we have to root that in intimacy with Creator God, now and in the age to come. Because that takes us out of that consumer's mentality, we begin to think of eternal life and abundant life as products and puts us in right relationship with God. And we see all of these other things kind of flow out of that intimacy that's offered to us in that. And so Israel in Jesus' day, was struggling with the same thing as their ancestors. They were missing the sign in the midst of the miracle. Their eyes were glued to the ground. They were focused on the manna. They thought it was coming from Moses. And Jesus is saying, it's not coming from Moses. It's coming from Yahweh himself. Would you turn your eyes to him and stop focusing on what's right in front of you? And what can I get out of Jesus? That's their primary thought. What can we get out of you? Give us something to fulfill our needs. But Jesus cannot be who we want him to be when we're stuck in a consumerist mindset. Jesus cannot be what we want him to be because it's too small an understanding of who he is. This reminds me of one of my favorite passages in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul lays out this beautiful third way of the cross. He says it like this. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength." There's this counterfeit power and this counterfeit wisdom that comes out of a consumer's mentality where we use power and wisdom to build ourselves up and to protect ourselves from other people. And the Jews wanted signs from God, not because they wanted to worship and glorify God, but because they thought if God comes and demonstrates his power, then he'll be able to boot out all of the infidels and we'll have our land back. And then God will prove that we're the chosen ones, we're the special ones, we're better than everyone else. You see, the Greeks were on the other side, and they have this idea that wisdom is power. If we have all the wisdom and we know how the world works and everything, then that's going to be the power we have that demonstrates that we're the best, that we're in control, that we're number one. And these are the two options in the world in the day. And it's interesting that Paul says we preach Christ crucified, not Christ resurrected, although although Paul really believes in Christ resurrected. He says Christ crucified. The weakness of God on display in front of the whole world. The offense of the cross, the scandal of the cross that becomes a stumbling block to the Jews who want God to come and demonstrate his power so it makes them privileged. And the Greeks who are looking for wisdom that gives them a sort of power that, that they're going to be in control. He says, no, we preach Christ crucified. And that's what real power looks like. That's what real wisdom looks like. I believe we see these two forces at work within the modern church today. I think there are too many of us in the charismatic church that are looking for the signs and the wonders of God because it gives us one up on our neighbor. That we want this kind of power and privilege and we want to be seen as the person who has the gifts and is able to do all of these amazing things but we're not pointing to Christ crucified. And I think there is just as many of us in the modern church today that crave wisdom. We gobble up all the information that we can. We read all the books and we listen to all of the podcasts because we believe if we can understand it, then we have a certain power, again, over everybody else. If we have a certain amount of wisdom. And it's amazing that it's Christ crucified at the center. Jesus is the true bread of life that ruptures both of our understandings of what power looks like. Both of our understandings of what wisdom is supposed to be like. And he leads us into something else. We want a king. We want a prophet. We want a Messiah who reinforces our tribe. We want a Jesus that we can put in golden handcuffs, that we can domesticate and we can tame him so that he'll give us what we want, so we can be the ones that have privilege and we can be the ones that look like we have it all together. But we miss, we miss real power. We miss real wisdom. Because real power and wisdom come from the Messiah broken open for us in weakness, triumphing over evil through self-sacrifice. It was Christ on the cross who breaks open that consumerist mentality, who breaks apart that fear of scarcity, who breaks open under our understanding that violence is how we get out of the world. Those are the things that put Jesus on the cross. That's what killed Jesus. In the Jews and in the Romans. That was the mentality that put Jesus on the cross. But the beauty of Christ crucified is it does not reinforce this idea of consumerism. But Jesus literally passes through it. Because violence is the ultimate consumerist move. And Jesus passes through it and leads us to a genuine kind of freedom. Because self-sacrifice was the only antidote to consumerism and violence. God could not come into the world with a bigger stick and put it to right. God could not come in with a greater sense of wisdom and power and just beat us all up and put us into place. Because it would only reinforce those cycles of violence. It would only confirm to us we have to consume and we have to protect and we have to fight off those who would compromise us but it was Christ crucified, the weakness of God on display that passed through all of that violence to lead us to a new way. And so Jesus' body broken open for us, that's our bread. That's our sustenance. That's the thing that speaks to our souls that have been almost killed off by the world as it is today. And Jesus rescues us from these cycles of consumption and violence and leads us into eternal life. So, what is the response of these people that are listening to Jesus? In verse 41, we find out. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? This, of course is echoing the grumbling of the Israelites in the desert, saying, I can't believe God brought us out of this desert. Why would he do this? Everything was better when we were in Egypt. Sure, we were enslaved, but at least we had food. At least we had water. And they forget about what God has done for them. So when the Jews can't handle this very big understanding of who Jesus is, they attempt to control their environment. They attempt to control their understanding of Jesus, and they begin to use coping mechanisms in order to just explain it away. The first one is what we call rationalization, which is where we explain something quickly away to dismiss it. We kind of saw this in the story of Nicodemus when Jesus is talking about being born again, and he says, How can you be born again? Can you just climb up back up into your mother's womb? You know, we use that rationalization, the, the earthly perspectives that we've been handed by the world around us, saying, well, this is just the way things work. And so these guys rationalize out with Jesus and saying, well, we, who is, we know who this guy is, we, we know his parents, we know where he's from. He couldn't possibly be the Messiah. And the second coping mechanism they use is trivialization, which is where you take something very big and you make it very small. We Kind of make that skeptical move where we reduce the story. We saw that earlier in the story of Nathaniel in the beginning, of the Gospel of John, where he just tries to reduce the message of Jesus to make it something e- more easily stomachable and then something that he can more easily push to the side. And how often do you and I do that? When we, when we encounter Jesus and we don't understand maybe what he's saying, we don't necessarily understand what he's offering us, and we begin to use these defense mechanisms to kind of contain him, to, to to domesticate him, to make him small so that he kind of works for us. He kind of props up our understanding of who we are and how the world works. And We rationalize out the stories that we hear. We rationalize out the stories we hear in other people's lives. We trivialize the message of Jesus. And it actually just fulfills this consumerist mentality. But when we free Jesus to be who he truly is, he frees us to receive a new life flowing from intimacy with God. You and I have to learn how to free Jesus up to be who he truly is because otherwise he will never satisfy. And this is the beauty of God. This is the love of God that he's such a gentleman that he will never impose himself upon you. He will never force himself upon you. He may not play your games. He may not meet all of your expectations but he'd never stop pursuing you verse 48, it says this, Jesus speaking again. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the man in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Another "I am" statement. Is Jesus inviting, identifying himself with God, and identifying himself as God incarnate? And this is the challenge for us today: Do you follow Jesus because of what He offers you? Do you follow Jesus because of what He gives you? Reinforcing the fact that at the core of your identity, you're just a consumer. Or do you follow Jesus because He's the Lord? Do you follow Jesus because he's God incarnate? Do you follow Jesus because he breaks you free from a consumerist mentality so to reveal that you are so much more than what you've given yourself credit for? It's the love of Jesus not to placate our needs, but to lead us into a new way of living. This is called the kingdom of God. This is that new world that you and I, on a very deep level in our spirits, know is possible. This is the thing that you dream about. This is the thing that you've tasted and you've seen in these little moments when you step out of being a consumer and you learn to be a child of God. You've tasted it and you've seen it and you know it. But the invitation from Jesus for all of us is that we get to live there fully and completely. He's going to open us up to to this new way of living in abundant and eternal life where we find our source in God as he truly is revealed in Jesus. And so what's the response to this? In verse 60, after Jesus speaks, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. There were many disciples in Jesus' day that walked away because Jesus refused to be domesticated and monetized and used for their own personal benefit. But Jesus as he truly is, is not able to be contained. He's not able to be repurposed and repackaged and and made a little bit more convenient for us. He is a wild and inconvenient God. But he's so good and he's so beautiful. And then we find Jesus turns to the 12 in verse 67. He says this, you do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. The disciples, the 12, recognized that nothing else would satisfy them like Jesus would. And it's not that they get, it's not that they understand what abundant life means. They don't understand what eternal life is. And I'd stand before you not understanding what that means myself but they have seen and they have heard and they have experienced enough of Jesus that they trust him, that they're able to enter into relationship with him, to walk the path with him, to discover what eternal life in God really looks like. The disciples are willing to enter into covenant with Jesus to say, I don't know what this is going to look like. I don't know who you are. I don't know who I am, but I'm willing to stick it out with you to discover that truth. And so you and I are invited to trust in Jesus today. And I promise you, you're not going to know the outcome. I promise you, you're not going to know what it's going to look like. The dimensions, the height, the depth, the weight of the promised land. Of being able to write a beautiful essay on abundant life. You're not going to to be there at first. But can you trust in where Jesus is inviting you to go because he is good, because he is trustworthy, because he is what God really looks like. So let's stand together. And I want us to worship. Go ahead, stand up, and we're gonna worship. And just as we're worshiping, I want you to just enter into some time of prayer. Just just you and the Lord for a moment And asking him to reveal to you where you have domesticated who Jesus is, where you've attempted to make Jesus small in order to control him, in order to reinforce your understanding of how the world is supposed to work and to reinforce who you think that you are. And God does not condemn us, but he does convict us. He will reveal to us those things in our lives that are holding us back from relationship with but even in that, do you trust that he's good? Do you trust that he's kind? Do you trust that he's tender? And that he's going to lead you out of that slavery into a new freedom. And as God reveals those things to you, just confess them, even out loud. Just to say, Lord, I want you to be who you really are. I don't want to hold you back. I don't want to compartmentalize who you are. I don't want to reduce your story to something that's more easily grasped. But I wanna trust in you as you are today and allow you to lead me. And I hope that with St. Peter, we can all echo those same words. Lord, to whom shall we go? Where Where else would we go to find intimacy with God? Where else would we go to discover who we're created to be? You have the words of eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son, our savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we repent of the times where we have made him small, where we have made Jesus convenient, where we have come to him not looking for signs that point us to truth, but coming to him because we want products out of him, because we want to consume him in an unhealthy manner that we want wisdom or we want the miraculous, not because we want you to be glorified, but because we want ourselves to be glorified. Father, we confess all of this to you and we repent. Would you break us free from a consumerist mentality? Teach us who we are when we are in you. Teach us who we are when we step into abundant and eternal life, that we might trust you and wherever you're taking us, that it will be glorious that it will be better than anything that we can imagine, that you satisfy our souls like nothing else can, because that's how you've created us to be. So, Father, as we worship you here today, we give your spirit permission to move freely in us and through us, to convict us, to challenge us, to encourage us, to keep us moving down the storyline with you honor and glory to you. We pray these things in the strong name of your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ.